Hello, everybody. Welcome to an episode of the Diecast Movie Review Podcast. This is Steve Turk again with a special episode. I'm going to be interviewing Kurt Christian, who a lot of you might remember from two of the Sinbad movies, the Golden Voyage of Sinbad and Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger. But he also did other films besides that, which we'll talk about during the interview. How are you doing, Mr. Christian? Very well, thank you. It's a nice warm afternoon here in California. <clears throat> Excellent. And um, I'm going to say I'm really happy and thankful that you're able to let me interview you. You know, um, I know you're a um, hard person to get a hold of. <laughs> oh, really? I didn't know that. I'll try and take care of that. <laughs> well, hard person to track down, I should say, you know, and um, oh. yeah, it, it took, it took some detective work to find you. And, um, oh. and that's very interesting, but I'm glad I was able to do it. I'm glad you agreed to, to be interviewed for our podcast. Oh, absolutely. absolutely. Well, your, your project is very fun and interesting to me. And uh, those two movies, particularly, I'm always happy to talk about because they were so much fun and such a vivid memory. Excellent. And uh, you were born in Hong Kong, correct? Yeah. My dad was in the British Navy. He was a commander in the British Navy. He was stationed um, in Sri Lanka, where he met my mom. That's why I looked like this. (laughs) And this is my real color. That's my thing. <laughs> but um, she, so she was from Sri Lanka, which was a, a, um, a colony of Britain. And he was stationed there. Then he, then he was moved to Hong Kong. And I was born there. And then we went back to England. And I grew up in England, in London. Excellent. And how did you get started in acting? What led you to go down this path? Okay, so I was four years old, and friends of my parents, who were very gregarious and knew lots of artistic people, said, you know, there's this movie, and there's there's some kids in it they need that are Malayan or Burmese or something, and I I look like something different, you know. And so they they said, you know, he he should be in it just for fun. And so I was, and it turned out to be a Gregory Peck movie where I had an operation done on me by Gregory Peck, who was a hero doctor. And he was just marvelous, very sweet with all the kids, great with us. So it was a fun memory. And then any time this kind of thing came up again, I'd say, oh, yeah, yeah, I'll do it. (laughs) And for for listeners wondering, The Purple Plane is the movie with Gregory Peck in it. and. Did you get the? Do you have any memories of Mister Peck or at all? I know, yeah. I know you're pretty young then. <laughs> yeah, no, very vivid because he was so tall and so so elegant. He was completely different from anybody else on that set, you know. And he was immediately, and he had a deep voice. And every time he came up to the kids, there were half a dozen of us. Um, he had bubble gum and candies, and he always brought them every day. And, and would laugh and joke with us, and then and everybody was relaxed when we did the scene. It worked very well. So he was a wonderful man. Uh, I'm, I'm, so he's a great memory. Uh, yeah, I, I can imagine getting to see him and seeing because I think he's like what six three or was six three. So yeah, and when you're yeah. a child, that's... time when people were five three. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he he was otherworldly. He was kind of magnificent. Because I, I saw that in your credits, and I was thinking, oh, I really hope he has some memories of being with Mr. Peck, because... 
right. He's one of my favorite actors watching him yeah. on film. Legendary. Legendary. So after that, like you said, you did other films. And, yeah. And the next one to come up to um, is 1967, The Long Duel. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So then I'd been, I'd, uh, I'd come to America. Um, I actually immigrated to, to the U.S. when I was 17 and arrived when I was 18 and uh, did a play. And then my mom had my sister. So I came back to, to kind of um, help with that. You know, because she was older, and uh, and uh, they were both working, my stepfather and her. So, so I helped and stayed for several years, and that's when. And straight away, I got that movie. Uh, and um, uh, my agent was MCA at the time, which was one of the big agents. And uh, and I and I was having a Romeo and Juliet romance with my girlfriend Joanna at the time. And so I brought her with me. So it was, oh my God, it was fantastic. We were in in, uh, uh, in Valencia, in Spain, uh, in uh, in Madrid, and in the south of Spain. So, and in the mountains, you know, and it was an adventure movie, and Yule was uh, the head of the bandits, and I was one of his cohorts. You know. It was a good, very good part, and I could ride very well, so... They gave me lots of writing stuff, so I loved it. And for those wondering, he's talking about obviously Yul Brenner, you know. For those yeah. who don't know, and yeah, we became very good friends. He's, he's, he was marvelous to us. He kind of adopted us because we were like obviously lovebirds and eighteen, and something, you know? <laughs> so so everybody was like looking at us like oh, <laughs> holding hands, you know, or Joshua. But I got killed in that movie, too. <laughs> that was the beginning of my death. <laughs> well, you, you, didn't so die as often as, you didn't die as often yeah. as Sean Bean does. <laughs> right, right, right. Sean, Sean doesn't. Sean can't last in movies. <laughs> yeah, that was a very fun adventure movie. Uh, Ken Anakin directed it. And um, um, top-notch photographers, like Oscar-winning photographers. And Charlotte Rampling was in it. And... Uh, uh, you, Harry Andrews, a wonderful actor. Trevor Howard was the other great guy. And I remember the the opening day we had to practice our writing. And I remember they gave Trevor Howard a stallion, and they gave one of the other actors a stallion. And stallions hate each other, so they immediately started fighting. And saw these leading actors saying, "Oh my God!" <laughs> The rest of us were, were smart enough to pick a small horse that'll start the But that's just experience. Yeah, I didn't know stallions hated each other until you said that. I'm, I'm not really a big oh, yeah. in, in, in the horses. Yeah. Who's, who's going to be the alpha? You know, mm-hmm. so they, they have a quick fight. Doesn't matter if somebody's on board. You know. <laughs> I guess it becomes a contest. How long can you stay on board? <laughs> oh yeah, not very long. They both came off. You can't fight that. That amount of power is ridiculous. But you had five different horses: one for walking, one for for close-ups or, or medium shots. You know, <laughs> that would stand still. One that was uh, only did rearing. He reared up, and, and you was and safely, so you could slide off if you, if you got unstable. And one for full gallops. So interesting. 
And Yule was a very expansive man. He was very rich and very, very, very famous. And and so every night he would take us all to dinner. And and, uh, and his suite was ridiculous. And he had a a special trailer brought in from Hollywood that, that had been handmade for him. It was like eighty feet long, <laughs> <laughs> or it seemed to be. And uh, and so he was that kind of man, and he was flamboyant. And, Large, even though he was a small man uh, in physically, uh, but he was in, in immaculate condition. And he was in his 50s then. And he, one night, this is a good little story, uh, he, he would drink quite a bit. And one night, uh, a journalist was bugging him, and, and he asked him to leave him alone a couple of times. And the guy got kind of belligerent and threw a punch at him. And Yule had huge hands because he had been a, uh, an acrobat. And he caught the punch in midair without even looking and just squeezed on the hand until the guy said, okay, okay, we're good. <laughs> it was amazing. It was straight, that's what you want your movie stars to be like, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, you always picture him being this, this tough guy, so you guys froze you. It, it kind of sets, oh, yeah. it, it sells the whole image. Oh yeah, his early life was, was, was uh, you know very adventurous. Uh, he and he told, would tell a story. But, and one day I was very daring, and I used to have a boiled egg in the morning when the shooting started. And uh, and one day I said to him, "Can you crack this egg for me?" You know, on his famous bald head. <laughs> and he laughed and laughed. Only I had gotten a regular egg. <laughs> somehow some some eighteen year old there is, you know, and he cracked it on his on his skull and it went like that. And there was one second where I saw that I was in a lot of trouble <laughs> and then he started laughing and everybody laughed and he was and I was like so relieved. <laughs> but he was he was he was great to it. What can I say? I can say not nothing negative about him. He's a wonderful man. Uh, I remember seeing him in the the King and I when they were doing a tour near the end of his life, and as you talked about his physical shape, he still he, he looked like a man much younger. And yeah. I think if he Figure wouldn't it. have smoked, he would probably lived for a lot longer. And and who knows what else he might Absolutely. have done? Absolutely, absolutely. I never saw him without a cigarette. He was like John Wayne, like just there, and and that beautiful voice, and uh, and those heartbreaking ads that he made against smoking. Yeah, knowing that he had days, weeks to live. Wonderful. Yeah, I remember those ads too, and it was just, it, it's just, I mean, no, it's been decades since I've seen those ads, and I still remember them. They were that vivid. And I think yeah. because he was such a famous, you know, being such a famous he was person. Yeah, yeah, exactly. exactly. Humanitarian, everything. Very generous. Exactly. You mentioned Charlotte Ramp- Rampling. Yeah, yeah. What was it like working with her? Oh, I, I was mesmerized. You know, she was gorgeous, number one, and you, you couldn't keep your eyes off her. And then she had this smoky kind of voice, and she just looked at you as though, mm, mm, you know, <laughs> like a femme fatale from, from a noir movie, you know. And that was her persona. She just was that. You know? And uh, and then, of course, all these people, you know, were, that I worked with, even on the, the um, Sinbad movies, you didn't know that they were going to become Doctor Who or they were going to become all these 
legendary too. Jane Jane did so well, you know, ends up she's a very she's a very was a very good friend of mine. So she's uh, and all of them you you were their peer at the time. Mm-hmm. You know, they were just more well known than you were as far as you in your in your junior mind, you know. But uh, but it but um then later you'd see that they they reached this status that was larger than life. Sometimes it's just the, the, the film or the role that hits the public the right way. Then you have a few others like that. And next thing you know, you're, everybody knows your name, but it doesn't mean the people that people forget that all the actors, it's a team effort. You know, I mean, it just, yeah. if you only have oh, yeah. one superstar, your team's not going to go far. <laughs> no, no. And you, the, the better the people are around you, the better you are. It's just like the thirties movies. Every extra was good in the 30s movie. You know, they were all involved. They all gave it the shot. So it was great. Now, later on in 1971, you were in the last, let me insert the, the Lost Valley. And now we're okay. with. A, la- a Last Valley is, is oh. the actual title. But, oh, okay. Uh, it meant uh, he had, you'd gone, uh, they'd gone across Europe. And, and of course, they hit many valleys, and this was the last one for all of them. They all ended up dying. <laughs> and I was a mercenary in that one. Uh, and that was James Clavell, who wrote Taipan. He wrote Shogun. Uh, he directed you know, the Creatures in the Black Lagoon or something called The Fly. He wrote The Fly. He was, he was something. I can only, I mean, and, and I'm looking at the cast, Michael Caine, yeah. Omar Sharif, uh, I mean, Brian, uh, Brian Blessed. I mean, it, it, it's a lot of names on there. And I'm, I'm just like, holy right. mackerel. <laughs> well, but Brian became a really good friend. And um, uh, Michael and Omar were, of course, in, uh, a, a lot of stars, not because of their own persona, but their, their status. There are many people between you and them, but they were very warm. Omar, was, I used to play Scrabble with. He could beat me at Scrabble, not only bridge and every and chess. Chess would be like three minutes, you know, <laughs> and any card game, any board game, just for fun. And then I used to, and this is great, you'll love this. Um, before he came, it was shot in Austria. We were in this um, hotel called the Maria Teresa Hotel. And because I was swarthy looking, and they thought I was his son. So I was about 19, 20, and uh, he was 38, maybe. And uh, he hadn't arrived yet. So I played off being his son for, for a couple of weeks. <laughs> met wonderful Austrian girls. <laughs> they asked me to tell them stories about him, and I'd make stuff up. But, um, and then he arrived, you know, and then, then that went down the drain. But... Uh, <laughs> But he turned out to be the most. He was called Cairo Fred by the by the uh, the crew, and he loved it. You know, that was that was his fun name. And then Michael was could not be more uh, delightful. He used to take us out, he used to, and he, you know, he complained about like once once they had to sh- to shoot uh, close to the horse. That he was on, and he hated the horses. <laughs> he didn't want to be on a horse. He'd rather be on an armchair. You know? And um, and uh, the pellet from the gun, they, there was some wadding in there, and it it hit him in the face. You know? So 
so they had to put a, a sheet up, a, a prospect in front of it, and do the scene again. You know, he was very, very upset. The only time I have ever seen him upset, and uh, because it hurt like hell, and uh, he wasn't expecting it. So we were a ragtag uh, gang of um, of uh, mercenaries that worked for this for, for Michael, and Michael was a, was German. He had a German accent, you know, and he was he, he sounded like Christoph Waltz, <laughs> and it was hilarious to think of. And then he'd say, you know. I don't know about that scene, you know, it's bloody awful, I think. <laughs> Let's do it again. You know? And then you go into this very strange German accent. <laughs> it was classic, corny accent. And then Brian was a, a complete maniac. Physically, one of the strongest people I've ever met. And, uh, but, wow, what a noggin. Brilliant, brilliant guy. And if you know about him, you know he's he's an amazing old man now. He, he looks incredible. He's eighty something. <laughs> he's, he's didn't he climb Everest uh, like more than yes. once? <laughs> yes, yeah, that's him. And probably nude, you know. <laughs> 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 uh, he was. I had nothing but fun with him. He had a uh, he had a young girlfriend. He came and visited, and we all we'd all go out to dinner. It was just delightful. And all of these movies had um, the best thing in the world is to be on location, you know? especially if you're in Austria or, or Spain, you know, or Italy. It's just really great because you get the best of everything. Everybody's friendly and helpful. So that was a fun, fun movie. And both those guys were super. Oh man, that, that, that's what's it's always good to hear about all three of them being that you got along with them all, and then oh. and then and then being, you know, because you, you always hear stories, and I always, you know, I, my thing is I like to talk to the people that actually know them instead of hearing all these yeah. things. Actually, work with them yeah. on a daily basis. It's funny you used to say that because I I go to a boxing gym called the Wild Card, and uh, a few years ago I was on the speed bag practicing the speed bag. And I hear, um, do you mind if I work in? And I turn around and it's Tyson. Mike Tyson, you know, the most terrifying man in the world. Not he is a fruitcake. And, and he's asking me, may I please work in with you on the speed bag in the most polite, childlike way, you know? And I say, oh my God, I am Mike. You know, you're, you're amazing. Of course you can. You know, and I give him a hug and he goes, <laughs> Think, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then he, he just on that. He's just a sweetheart, you know, in the gym at work, at you know, they're they're at work with their companions and friends and colleagues, you know, and they're completely different. I don't, you know, you get bad stories about different people, but I've had very few poor experiences, really. And I think that's yeah. what's important for people to know. Is like, my thing is everybody. Because people say when when I go to ask somebody for an interview, they're like, "How do you ask somebody for an interview?" And, and aren't you intimidated? And I'm like, "No, we're all people. We all put our pants on, you know, one leg at a time. Unless you're strange, you go crazy and go to it one time, and don't know if that'll work for you." But we're all. You, you try it that one time. <laughs> go on. Yeah, but I mean, that's and, very true, and that's the thing. It's like um. Most people just enjoy being around other people and having that connection. Some people are, like to be 
more secluded and, and that's fine also, you know, and, and everybody, everybody's different and they're, they're just like your normal work environment, except it's yeah. a different type of work. Right. And their, their, their lives are, um, it's 24 seven for them. You know, it never stops coming at them. You know, somebody wants something at all times, you know, and you have to give them that space and let them come to you. Generally speaking, when you work with them, when they're on that kind of level, where everybody knows about them, you know, and everybody's going, oh my God, is that, what's his name? You know? <laughs> and, and, and that was back uh, then. It's only worse yeah. now with um, so many people, yeah. cell phones, and everything else. And they're always trying to get people in the gotcha moments. Everybody's shooting something. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, yeah. and I hate you're, that. You're going to catch a bad moment sometime because, you know, you're in somebody's face. We all have good days. We all have bad days. And if you catch somebody on a bad day, that doesn't mean it's normally that they're normally that way. But people just, you know, write it off that way. And I, I hate that. I hate that. Yeah, yeah. And none of all of those guys all paid their dues. They all had, you know, ten years in or fifteen years in before it hit. You know, before something took off. And that's the good thing. If he, if it happens too early, it's very hard on on, on youngsters when they become superstars at twenty, uh, because they don't have any perspective anymore. They they start to believe some of that. So they usually go through a rough period where they have to adjust. But I have to say, the older actors will adjust them if they're not careful. <laughs> <laughs> so, so they get their wake up call you know, from that. I think that's the way in every work environment. The the person that's the been there eventually will sit him down and say, "Look, this this is um, you know, we're, we've been this tolerating this, but now this is getting <laughs> to be annoying, and we we're, we're going to have to change." We we meaning yeah. you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. There's a, a famous story about the Disney about Jerry Katzenberg, Katzenberg, Jeffrey Katzenberg, and he there were two superstars. Or, or thought they were superstars, but they weren't quite superstars. They were just below, you know, which, which is, is a dangerous place to be. And uh, they had an affair, and they went off and left the movie for two weeks and then came back and said, okay, we're ready to shoot again. And he said, oh, he got, they got the call to go to his office, and he said, oh, we can't stop shooting, and we can't start shooting again. Until you paid um, six million nine hundred thousand dollars for the two weeks that you were missing, because that's how much money we lost. So uh, get that to my office as soon as possible. We'll start shooting again. But we're halfway through the movie, you know. And they said, "Yeah, we'll just shut it down. It's not worth it. It's not working." <laughs> and they both, you know, couched out immediately and begged and. And, uh, you know, said, and, it, and you realize that there's lots of money, there's 200 people working, there's a lot of stuff going on, you know, and they just don't want to function. If it's artistic differences, that's different. But, but when you're just growing up, you know, there's a lot of tough people in that business. <laughs> Oh, it, I mean, I think it definitely is because everybody wants the. if you got a role, in a movie, they ever there's a there's like five thousand other people that want that same role, and if Absolutely. you and if you start to take things for granted, that's when um, people make their move because it's like an eye of the tiger thing, oh, hunger. Yeah, so, uh, a lot of uh, the original casting for so many movies is, is completely different, and you imagine you're wondering what that movie would have been like, you know, with, with, with who was supposed to be in it. 
that uh, they got fired or, or got got too big for food. You never know. Exactly, and um, <laughs> your next role, you got to play a prince, um, Pope Joan, nineteen seventy-two. Oh, yeah. You were Prince Charles. <laughs> wow, yeah, that was about a week's shooting, and there was this amazing guy called Maximilian Schell, and uh, who was very, very, very smart, genius level smart, Oscar winner. And, uh, and he was the, it was a famous legend. It may be, it may be true that this priest and a nun had a, had a, a love affair. And she pretended to be a man uh, to, to, because she was very smart and she was the most knowledgeable of, of all the, in the nunneries and everything about Christ and about um, religion. And, um, she got pregnant from him and she had just become made a cardinal or something amazing. And and she was starting to show dressed as a man and pretending as a wig to be, to be a man. And, uh, uh, Liv Ullman played that line from the Bergman movie. There's Liv Ullman at the table. And, uh, and she becomes Pope. And she was voted by the other folks to be the most brilliant of the life. And at the day of her uh, invocation, the baby bursts inside her because she's it's all strapped up. That's the legendary story. And so I was uh, Prince Charles, I think, uh, mad as a hatter. You know, so that was really <laughs> funny. And everything's great. You know? And Olivia de Havilland slapping on the ass. Which was just, was just, you know, I'll never forget. I can feel the handprint. <laughs> <laughs> she was about seventy then, probably or sixty-five or something. <laughs> and I was very young. And she's still uh, going strong today. I mean, it's she's great. And she's beautiful. She's a beautiful ninety-eight-year-old woman. You know, it's just ridiculous. <laughs> she's her hair is always nice, luminous eyes, and she's smart as she's shot. She's like uh, Betty White, you know got that she's right on the button great memories and she can she's a great interview now why did she end up smacking you on the behind did you do some mischief <laughs> we we were laughing and i made some some joke to the little she because she had pizzazz she had that 30s hollywood pizzazz you know they were, they were young people having fun in those days and they knew that this was a one-off chance that they were they were in Hollywood and they were just, what was going on. You know, nobody knew what the future was going to be like. So they were kind of a vagabondish feeling about actors, and she still had all that uh, all that pizzazz. <laughs> she was a sexy old lady. <laughs> she, was just, she was just fun. And then great stories. We 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 had these uh, the same at Pinewood. There were these long tables. And you never knew who was going to be telling stories. Sean Connery, Richard Harris, all these people around at the same time. And they were the older generation to us. And we, we, we got to be at their feet listening to these marvelous stories. All right, so you got, you got to meet Sean Connery and Richard Harris? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. A friend of mine was in To Serve With Love. Uh, and there was a scene where... Um, uh, the, the Sydney Poitier was going to open the door, and it was the first time all the 
kids had seen him, you know, and they didn't realize it was a, a black, an African American man, a, a black man, and um, and so everybody that was on at Pinewood at the time shooting came through that door except Sidney Poitier. So we opened the door and Sean Connery said, you little bastard, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and then everybody showed like that. And then Richard Harris would come and Peter O'Toole would come in. <laughs> just for fun. You know, just outtakes type of fun. And then finally Sidney Poitier came in. Very scary. <laughs> You, you, you've met so many of these actors that I just, just enjoyed yeah. so much with their film, like Sidney Poitier and, and Sean Connery, Richard Harris, Peter O'Toole. I mean, it's just amazing how um, you, you, yeah. you, you seem to be in the right spot at the right time. Yeah, it was just that. It was exactly that, you know, where you were at that time. And, and you, they, were, they were your colleagues. They were, and they were, you know, they, they were fun and, and witty and drunk and you know, everything you'd imagine. I can imagine Richard Harris and Peter O'Toole definitely being uh, partiers. <laughs> well, they they great back on tours, so you wanted to listen to their stories. That was the main thing. Sean Connery is a fantastic storyteller, and and he's uh, he was intolerant of, of of any kind of bad manners or or rudeness to the cast or anybody. He just said, "One of us has got to go, and I think it's going to be you." Michael Caine and Sean Connery impressions. Oh, this is awesome. (laughs) Oh, yeah, they're great friends. Great friends. I'm I'm loving your impressions of them. They're they're, they're very good. (laughs) Michael is just funny all day long. So he was. uh, and he's a, he told us the story, for instance. He did a movie called The Italian Job. Mm-hmm. Great movie, uh, adventure, fun movie. And, uh, and Noel Coward, who was a great playwright and witty uh, man, was, and talked like this, who had a voice like this, when he was an upper class man. And, and the juxtaposition of, of Kane working for him, you know, was, was part of the, part of the story. And because when they met there uh, for the first time, it was kind of like, I wonder what this, how this is going to be. And he, apparently, they had dinner together at the Savoy, and apparently uh, Michael said he ordered a steak. And he said, I think I'll have this steak ta-ta. You know, can I have it well done? And I don't know if you know, but steak ta-ta is raw. <laughs> <laughs> it's supposed to be raw. <laughs> and so, no, darling, I have to tell you. You, know? <laughs> you have to study the menu before you order. <laughs> before you order you know? But it turns out that both of their moms were cleaning ladies, were char ladies. And Noel Cow had made up his whole story that he was an upper-class guy. And he was really... Exactly the same as Michael. They had both come <laughs> from the East End and they're both cousins and they're both so it's very, very poor. But but Michael wasn't was proud of it and Noel was ashamed of it. And that is how they've grown up two in two different ways. So fascinating. 
It is because of how people, how I think, I guess it depends how your schoolmates were treating you and one yeah. was, and how you react to it. And some people accept where they're coming from and take it and, and, and realize that their family is very important to them. And, um, I'm not saying both of them didn't think their family wasn't important, but then no, he would he would never acknowledge her though. Though he did it privately, and he looked after her and bought her a house and all the rest of it, but he but he never acknowledged her in public. Yeah, so that that's quite tragic, you know, really. But and it's part of that Downton Abbey culture of the time that he grew up, and he knew what path he wanted to take, and he just. He made up a whole story, same as so many 30s actors and 20s actors who came here. You know, they made up that they were a count or they were very wealthy or you know, whatever. Yeah, especially now, back then you could get away from nowadays. You'd be get away with it. You, you now it'd be, it'd be like 300 people. On the... <laughs> yeah, you'd be found out in, like in no time. And then, and, and then you're like, oh, my career. And then you're apologizing and all that stuff. Yeah. yeah. 1973. You did a horror hospital where you played Abraham, <laughs> and you and you worked with Michael Goff. Yeah, and, and yeah, he was like he was another one that was marvelous, uh, uh, very funny, very witty, very fun, and yet all of these people they all knew all their lines, they knew your lines, they knew the whole where they were going with it, and so whether you called them at eight o'clock in the morning. Or it's four o'clock at night. They were all ready. You know, whereas the the younger uh, actors were were all over the place, you know, and have getting in the pages and and oh no, you know, I'm not ready for this. That that was a very salutary on a on a very silly movie, you know, and very funny, and it became a kind of cult classic. Uh, and then full of nudity and 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 uh, loads of blood and heads coming off and all kinds of stuff. Uh, and um, and dwarves and giants and everything. <laughs> and then, and I I had a scene where my I came there to look for my girlfriend that they kidnapped and become and had an operation done on her to, to make her like a zombie. And the girl had been miswritten, and she was stunning, Barbara, I think her name, and she um, completely nude. A whole time, and I was trying to be. Trying <laughs> <laughs> to look at other things, you know. <laughs> and it was so difficult. And she was completely oblivious, and uh, and she was fine with, it, with all of it, you know. She was just, she just, I know this is how I am. You know? <laughs> Enjoy. <laughs> so, and, yeah, and uh, and I could, it was hard to get through the scene. I was supposed to feel very emotional because they changed her. What have they done to you? You know, like that. And, uh, and I was like, I, let me rehearse that one more time. <laughs> <laughs> I guess no, no matter how many times you know the lines in the script, it's when you're finally seeing what you had to see. Um, yeah. It could not prepare you. <laughs> no. no. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then this, this shooting took probably six hours. <laughs> Four <laughs> hours. And I was trying to be the gentle when I get those roads and stuff. Make sure she was covered uh, in between. But uh, I don't think she minded that. Everybody has a different um, way of handling those type of things, I guess. And, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. 
she was just, and I think part of it is knowing that you look flawless from any angle. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, for, for listeners, we're, we're doing this by fa- over FaceTime and, um, I, I can actually say to him, it, it, I, I don't have to worry about having a good angle or a bad angle. It's, 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 it's all interesting, whatever way you look at it. That's why I do oh, an yeah. audio podcast. That's <laughs> great. That's the way to go. <laughs> My, my usual joke is I have the, I have the face for radio and the voice for a silent movie. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, I've got a key light and all kinds of things for, the, for an audio, audio, <laughs> <laughs> an audio podcast, just from experience, <laughs> just from years of movies. You know. I make sure my key light's ready. <laughs> <laughs> All right, now, listeners, I know you've been waiting for us to get to the, the first of the two biggies, you know, uh, that, yeah. that, that pretty much everybody knows or has seen growing up, especially, um, you know, myself and anybody that's, that grew up through the 70s, 80s, they were yeah. constantly on TV, and yeah. the golden voyage of Sinbad. Yeah. And I got to say, you were you were definitely have all the funny lines, virtually all the lines, all the funny lines are I'm yours. The, <laughs> I'm you, the comic relief. <laughs> the whole thing and uh, and it's funny because uh, uh, before when we were prepping for it we were doing all sword work and they they there was supposed to be an Olympic fencer who was going to arrange the fight and, and teach us the safest way to do everything but there was a, a gap between him arriving too he didn't arrive for two or three weeks he was Italian and um uh, they got the world champion Saber Spencer to come and teach us. He was from Russia, and he was six foot eight, and he was in the same mode that he was when he had just won the championship. <laughs> so he just beat the shit out of us with his wooden sword, you know, and not like that, you know. <laughs> you know, <laughs> we're actors. <laughs> we're not supposed to get hurt. <laughs> and they had to they had to fire him. And he was he had a part in the movie as a villain, as a giant villain. You know, and um uh, but that was a huge mistake and everybody was was you know, wrists and faces and everything. And he would slap you himself, you know, because he was a Russian fencer. That's how they were born. <laughs> so that was that was right off the bat and I thought uh, yeah, this is it's a great part in a great movie, but I don't know. <laughs> I don't know about this. <laughs> do, do I want to get physically maimed over this part? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so luckily they stepped in. And, and Charlie, the producer who produced both of them, and all of Harry Housen's work, uh, was, was a marvelous, fun guy. And, uh, and he was on top of things. He was an old school kind of Josephine Levine type of producer, you know, who, was in, who ended up paying people out of a suitcase. Sometimes he got, he got Robert Shaw to do, to do a small part, you know, in the Oracle. Mm-hmm. You know, that scene? Yes. That's Robert Shaw. The great Robert Shaw from Jaws and from, from Henry VIII and, and wonderful. Uh, and he came one day and he gave him, you know, a suitcase of cash. Because he had eight children. <laughs> so he'd do anything for, for, for a cash payout. So that was, uh, we got to meet him too. So, 
Uh, so that that started off where well, we we had a, this party at at the producer's house, and I got to meet the, the whole cast and everybody. And John Philip Law was the star, and he was he had been a chiropractor. He was a very sweet guy. He was always clacking our backs and making <laughs> sure we were okay. <laughs> he was. He told me he was six foot six, but all the agents said you, you can never admit that. You have to say you're six foot four, six foot three. Don't say you're six foot six or you'll never ever work in this town. You know? <laughs> so he sort of hunched over and pretended to be a bit smaller. Because he was Barbarella. He was in Barbarella. He was in a lot of big movies. Out of the, out of the three Sinbad movies that Harry Housen did, and of course you were in two of them, He's still my favorite Sinbad. He just looks. He's funny. He just looks funny. like Sinbad to me. You know, it's like yeah. when I watch him. Yeah, yeah. Without his turban, he was blonde and blue eyed. And did not look <laughs> like Sinbad. But, but the minute they put that thing on, he was he, he possessed it. I have to admit, you know, he, he was really fun and a very sweet guy, easy to work with. I had a a. Um, Oh no, that was the other movie that I had a sort of side fight with him. I was on his side in this movie in the first one, and that was a lot of fun because I was a drunk and a bum, and my dad just wanted me to become a real man. So that was a lot of fun. Yeah. And I had a great scene with the front of the ship. It was a very buxom sort of goddess. Do you remember that one? Yes. And so I'm looking at it like, oh. <laughs> Yeah, that was fun. And then I, a friend of mine, Martin Shaw, was in that. He, he became a very big star in, in TV. Uh, what was it like uh, working with Martin? What was like Martin Shaw like? Because one of my friends um, is a big Martin Shaw fan. Oh, okay. And yeah, well, so, so what was it like with Martin Shaw? Okay, he was, we were sort of uh, on the same plane. In the, in the, he was a little more experienced, a little older. Uh, but um, so we right away became bonded and we practiced sword together and doing it. And then we lived in the same uh, block of apartments in, in Madrid for three months or something. And we often had dinner. And he was fully vegan in 1975 or 72 when he shot the movie. You know. He was way ahead of his time. And he had a very interesting story. He had one cheekbone was kind of weird. On him. He only, you only see it at certain lights. And he had been a heavy drinker. Mm-hmm. And, and he used to go from pub to pub with his best friends, and like many actors. And um, one night he gets, he and his friends both get beaten up by one guy so badly that his cheekbone went inward. You know, the, the arch was broken and went in, inside. It's, car, it's basically cartilage and indented. And the doctor managed to put a hook in and pull it back out. So he otherwise, he never would have had his career. But there's still an indent there from that. And that changed his life. And then they found out that the guy was beating up more and more people every week. And he was just practicing. He was just for one day when he'd be able to kill somebody. And they found his diary and they finally found him. Of course, the guy found And so Martin and I were very good. We talk all the time about art, about music, and 
he was he's a very erudite guy and a very very sweet, charming guy. So we we stayed friends. And then he went on to do this series called Gently in uh, George Gently is an inspector. And he, he's brilliant in it. But he's a he's a national treasure in England. Yeah, the, the, my friend, he lives in New Zealand now, and he just he was telling me he just loves him in the professionals, and oh, that's right, that's right. and and other things. And it was just so I had I had to make sure I asked about Martin Shaw for him. Otherwise, oh yeah, otherwise I'll, he'll be upset at me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He was he rehearsed and he would get the intensity up, and then he and then that helped all the other actors. He was taking it as a straight shot, whereas Patrick Troughton, who was a current Doctor Who. He was Doctor Who for a while mm-hmm. before Tom, uh, Tom Baker, and uh, he was a grumpy old bastard. You know, <laughs> he wasn't fun at all. <laughs> <laughs> but before we get to that Doctor, okay, there was a the Doctor in, in the Golden Voyage of Sinbad, Tom Baker. Was, it, it, oh no, the, he was in the second one. Yeah, the Golden Voyage of Sinbad. No, he's in the. Because um, he's in the same one with Sinbad Caroline the Monroe. The... Patrick Troughton is in Sinbad the Eye of the Tiger. No, Patrick Troughton's in the original, in Golden Voyage. Just just check it and you'll see. Oh, I did. I wrote, I wrote it down. Tom Baker's the villain in, in Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger. The Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger, it's Margaret Whitting. And you're the villain in Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger. Oh, <laughs> my God. Well, you do. You're right. Absolutely right. My fault. I juxtaposed it. Well, it's only been like well, you know a few decades. Yeah, <laughs> I don't think anybody's expecting us to you know to be perfect on that. But. Yeah, I'm contradicting a, a, a film expert. <laughs> well, I'm not an expert, but I just, but I knew you were the villain in the, in the next one. No, you're, you're right. You're right. Yeah, because we went we went and then we found Tom Baker's uh, uh, lair. And we, we, we then got into it, and then we fought Carly, and, and that, was, that was all that, all that stuff. That was because, really fun. Because yeah, this movie, if I understand right, because I remember talking to Caroline Monroe, this yeah. movie got Tom Baker to part as Doctor Who. I believe so, yeah. Oh. yeah he was a very eccentric guy. He was a lot of fun. He was the oddest man you never knew. He'd go off into a a rant about something or he's singing let it be you know for, what are we going to do when the Beatles are broken up you know? <laughs> <laughs> how are we going to live <laughs> yeah, he was a joyful soul he was fun and and was very good in the movie too and the, the man who played his assistant was in Zorba the Greek oh, he, with he, Anthony Quinn yeah so he's one of the leading actors in Greece you know, and he's happy to be playing this part for fun. And he was a very, yeah, very fine man. Uh, so that was the the um, all the stunt people that were in it had just started to put weight back on uh, because the they had all been in the Fistful of Dollar movies, <laughs> so they all had to be very thin. <laughs> Uh, and then they, they just started, and they were so happy they could eat pasta. <laughs> <laughs> and so they tell us stories about working with Clint and doing the, doing the movie. Caroline Monroe. Oh, wow. What a sweetheart. 
just a lovely, lovely girl, lovely person. Uh, and then she was, she was the opposite of the girl in her hospital in the sense that she had no idea of the effect that she would have of just walking across the set, you know, where people would freeze or, or, or drop their tea. Because <laughs> <laughs> she was stunning. But she was so sweet that then that, that was what you respected and enjoyed. She was such a charming person. Just happened to have a figure that didn't really exist until she 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 came into she was kind of the Raquel Welch type of figure mm. that was where did this come from? You know, we've never seen this before. Because you know? mm. <laughs> we were coming out of the era of the the blah blah boom shaky these girls looked athletic and she was stunning and and really really fun and sweet to, to work with. Now, what was it like working with Ray Harryhausen? Like, how much did he direct you in in scenes or the other actors? Because obviously, like you said, you brought the models to the set, and he's had many years of experience doing it. But what was it like fighting nothing? <laughs> good, good point. Um, he would have a cutout of at the size of, of whatever it was. Um, and he would go into absolute detail. And all of us were wrapped with attention. We, were, we, we wanted to please him so much. We wanted to do everything meticulously and make it come to life. And, uh, for instance, I had to throw a brazier full of, of red-hot coals, flames, and it was on a wire, and I had to throw it at, at nothing. <laughs> and then it kind of explodes, and uh, and uh, so we so that was a difficult scene to set up, and uh, and it was done in this huge studio in in Madrid, and um, it was it was no, it was in Mallorca, and um, they they were difficult. They were those the fight scenes took like eight days, seven or eight days. There was, there was a colleague who you know, a very complex scene. And we then we have to throw ourselves backwards and you know, Connie gives us a whack or or issues with the sword and kills one guy and, and it was it was it was rigorous. Because I think with all his creatures in the, that movie, you were in I think every fight scene or every scene yeah. with the creatures. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And loved every minute of it. Yeah. Right right up until the, the, the last shot of the movie. Really, really fun. Now in that movie, you had um, the five creatures. Out of those five creatures, which one was your like favorite one? I mean, I know you got to kill the Cali, um, but there was yeah. also you, also you got to kill the Camoculus too, <laughs> didn't yeah. you? Every... <laughs> 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 yeah, I became a hero at that moment. You know, first of all, my pants fell off just before that. You know, then the next minute, I got I got uh, John Phillips uh, built. Bent the uh, bent the piece of iron and made it into a bow. And the homunculus, I think, works fantastically in the movie. It's a very it's a it's a it comes up in a lot of literature. The idea of the homunculus and, and it's kind of eerie and weird, <laughs> <laughs> and it, it works. It's great. That was that was in a, a grotto, that an actual huge grotto 
and they nearly brought that whole place down. Really? Stalactites and stalagmites, yeah, because they had to do all these explosions. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it was a national treasure there. You know? and, and many nights when we were shooting in there, you'd get lost. You'd go for a leak, you know, go for a pee or something, and and then you'd be like, you listen to sounds, and then you'd imagine all kinds of things slithering around there. You know? So. It was pretty amazing. And then you think you're back in another horror film. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was literally like a horror movie. And, but so much fun to shoot. And uh, uh, and then every day, we would every night we would arrive. Because you had to shoot at night because it was a, a, a national treasure during the day. And people, tourists would come. So we could only shoot at night. But you sometimes you looked around and thought, this has got to be a set. This can't be real. And here they were, real stylites and stylites. And you'd hear that drip, drip. It was really joyful to work. Now, uh, I almost forgot one actor I wanted to bring up, the one who played the vizier, Douglas Wilmore. Wilmore. Oh, yeah. He played Sherlock Holmes. He, was oh, he did. I can't. Yeah, you can check it. He was, he was marvelous. Marvelous. had a beautiful voice. And he was, uh, and that, this is a, an odd thing. I had learned CPR in England because I once saw a traffic accident and couldn't help the guy. I tried to, but I didn't know what I was doing. So from then on, I went and took CPR, of course, because I just didn't like the feeling of helplessness that you could could have really helped somebody. And Douglas uh, was walking back to his trailer and fell down a, a trench. And for a moment, his heart stopped. And I happened to be right behind him. And, and so I gave him CPR, you know, just, just for a moment or two. And then and he was, his heartbeat started again, whether, I, whether it was from the CPR or whether he would have happened anyway. But, but, um, but that was a, a, so that we had a really good bond. <laughs> he made sure I was everywhere he went. <laughs> I know you don't notice, but I teach CPR for the Red Cross. What? Yeah, I used to work for the Red Cross from like 1990 to 2013, but I'm still a Red Cross instructor. Oh, super. And super. one of my favorite things is when I would go to teach other people the following years, and some of them would yeah. come up, I did CPR, or I did the, you know, the Heimlich maneuver or whatever, and I saved this person's life. And it always it, it's just... Oh, just made your it always would make my day. It's, just, it's like man, I've done it six times in, in my life since then. Um, um, one of them was a, a four-year-old little girl, and they had her upside down. They were slamming her on the back, and I said it was in a park, and I said, "Can I just try?" And she was blue. It's an awful, awful thing to see. And then her little chest was this big, and. and um, and I, I had the thumb, and I had I knew what I was doing. Thanks to these people, and uh, pop, this candy came out. It was a big gobstopper at that stage. It came popping out, and the parents started crying, and the kids crying, and then, and then she goes, "Mommy, mommy, mommy, can I have another sweetie?" <laughs> <laughs> you were dead two minutes ago. How resilient are you? Know? <laughs> <laughs> well, that was lovely. 
and I think that people like yourself that did not are not required to take it, but take it is is, is so important because a lot of most of the places when I was working with the Red Cross, I teach at work sites. So it's people required. And some of the people, you know, because they'd have it used to be every year, now it's every two years that the certification yeah. lasts. Yeah. And they used yeah, to I say Exactly and, and they used to say, Why do I have to take it every year? And then people in the class that actually had performed the skills would be the opposite way. Oh, I want to take it more often because they actually yeah. had done it and they don't want to be yeah. they want to be ready to go. Absolutely. And, Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And you don't want to have any hesitation and they there were some weird laws uh, that they had to put in this, this Samaritan, good Samaritan law mm-hmm. that if you broke somebody's uh, rib or anything like that. You know, imagine having to do that. You know, having, and luckily, judges would throw the cases out of court when they tried to sue the guy or, or girl that was saving their life. You know, that was shameful. You know? <laughs> yeah, it, it, well, you know, people are people, some people are yeah. that way, but I mean, most people would be grateful. Um, you, you're going to, when you do CPR, you almost always are going to break ribs, especially if it's yeah. somebody middle-aged or older. I mean, it's just the nature of the beast. Yeah. And that sternum and the, the whole area around there, it's very vulnerable. Yeah. Cause it sounds, it would sound like that, like knuckle cracking sounds yeah, it, it, when yeah. the ribs are breaking. And, um, and it's usually yeah. the cartilage that connects the it's ribs the and the breastbone. Exactly. And then I tell people, it's like, because when I teach the classes, and I still do, it's like I tell them, like, you're going to hear sounds come from a body that you've never heard before. Keep doing it. <laughs> you're not, yeah. you, my, 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 when you're doing CPR to somebody, they have no pulse. So technically, they're dead. And I always yeah. to say to them, can you make somebody worse than dead? There's no such <laughs> thing as. I'm going to use that. There's no such thing as debtor, so if you can't make them debtor, you can make them better. You got a chance to make them alive. That's right. right. So you got nothing to lose. Just get in there and do it. And and that's because so many people are worried about making mistakes. Oh, I don't want to make them worse, and that's why I try to get across to them. You you can't. Well, I started to get hesitant. You know, on the last one, I think I was a little hesitant about it. I've got to be careful because I, you know, but but I went ahead anyway, and uh, and he was completely intoxicated the whole the whole uh, car in case it come off a cliff and gone down into these people's yards and nobody everybody just kept looking and i was i just ran across him and he stank it was vomit everywhere it was horrible and they cleared the vomit and okay you know <laughs> and luckily they and they and it started and it was, there was nothing going on there was no no, not an ounce of breath, and uh, and all pulse, and uh, it started, and, and then he started coughing, and then he, and then he, but his both legs were broken, the bone was right through the, mm-hmm. the femurs were gone, and then the firefighters came, thank God. Yeah, I mean, and they they actually said good job, <laughs> which was like, well, oh, thanks. <laughs> Yeah, if you, if you do a bad job, they won't say anything at all. They'll just ask you, you know, no. could you move out of the way? But if if you're if you're doing yeah, good a, work, they'll say, yeah, you do you did a good work, or or they'll or they'll let you keep doing it, and they'll set up around you. Yeah, <laughs> and I and think then take happy over. Not to not to deal with vomit and stuff for a change. <laughs> yeah, it's not it's not pleasant. <laughs> no, it's not. No, no, what they do is amazing. Exactly, and and th- thank thankfully for people day like that that do out. that. Oh yeah, that's, yeah. that's cops that's a, do it a lot too. 
mm-hmm. deliver babies, do all kinds of things. So, so we forget about that stuff. Yeah, there's a lot of things that our first responders do that we need them for, especially first aid and health, because they're there first. But I won't move on this topic and move into the movies again. But one thing I want to remind hmm. everybody. They don't show up until you call them. So if you see a medical emergency, call 911 and get them to, in, in the United States, that's the number, you know, because I know some people in other countries listen to call whatever your emergency number is and get them there because they don't magically know. Don't assume anybody else is called. Call them. If you're not sure what to do, the dispatcher can walk you through the steps. True. Good stuff. I feel like we just did a public service announcement. <laughs> 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 but as I, I think for both of us, it's near and dear to our hearts. And I think that this yeah, is something that very important. Yeah. once you've done it, I mean, you're just, you're just you're euphoric, you know, because that, that person is alive, especially the child. It's amazing. It, it is. And, and, you know, take the course, get the knowledge. Yeah. Yeah. You never know. You never know. 1975, you did a little film called Paper Tiger. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and, you David worked, and you worked with some heavyweights oh, yeah. in that film. Yeah. And uh, what was it like working in Paper Tiger, which is, I've never seen this movie. Um, okay. I'm, I'm, I'm going to try to find, it's hard to find. <laughs> it is hard to find. I don't know why. It's actually quite an interesting movie. It's a, an old-fashioned adventure movie, you know, like they made in the 50s and 60s, 70s. They weren't action movies at the time. They were action adventure or adventure. And they had an actually good story. It wasn't just about getting to the guns and getting to the explosions and things. So the story of it was that there was a con man pretending to be a war hero uh, that was now in the Far East and was a teacher. And so he... All, everything about him was fake. All the teacher stuff was fake. All the, and David Niven was the, the guy. You know, he was getting by. And he suddenly gets this gig to, to um, teach uh, the son of the Japanese ambassador uh, to, to this mythical country. And we, of course, I was a, a bandit. And we were, we were terrorists and bandits. Long before it was fashionable, <laughs> <laughs> and um, uh, and Irene Sue, an actress, uh, played played the she was the head, the titular leader, and and I was her assistant. And we planted bombs, and, beat, and we got to, and I I happened to do martial arts, and, and became quite adept at it. So I got to use it all in this movie, loads of fight scenes, and, and it was steaming hot there. And every day was, was a bit of a challenge, you know, because it was so hot. And it's a city built into a jungle, basically. So it's a very modern city, but it's, uh, and but the people were wonderful. We we got adopted by the by some of the stunt people, and shown secret places in uh, you know, secret uh, restaurants, way under a laundry, and you open a, a strange little door, and there's Hundreds of people in there <laughs> having a marvelous dinner and a secret dinner. So that was all great. And then uh, Mifune arrived. She's Tashira Mifune, who was, you know, the dude. I mean, I loved Kurosawa, as, as did everybody. Yule had, you know, Yule owned Magnificent Seven. 
he bought he bought the Seven Samurai mm-hmm. so that he could make the Magnificent Seven, you know. And um, so he had told the stories about about uh, Mifune and about the, he yeah, was his hero. <laughs> so you imagine who this guy was. You know, he was the hero of all the actors, James Coburn and, and Eastwood. Quince loved him, and uh, and and he was the toughest guy in movies. I mean, there was just and a great, great actor, great presence. And in real life, this is the first time I get to see him. He arrives on the set in a complete kimono, full kimono, with two young geishas, one on each side, a huge ice bag on his head, because he had had a huge hangover. (laughs) (laughs) And they had a drink each in their hand. So that's another great entrance. <laughs> but I didn't get to talk to him until quite a bit later. Then he was, of course, magnificent. You know, everything he wanted. He's arguably one of the greatest actors ever. I mean, he, dynamic. Definitely in the top Just five. Took over. Top five list. Top five. <laughs> top five. Took over every everything. And he and Kurosawa's favorite director was John Ford. <laughs> so interesting, you know. How how that had that had juxtaposed, and of course some of his movies, Kurosawa's movies, look like John Ford movies. The early ones, some of the early ones. And I think that's the but beauty of film. I was, I was that the beauty of film is it translates the, the visual part translates all languages. All languages, and, and that's that's what I love about the, the, of, of cinema. Yeah, but you were saying more yeah. about. Um, he. Um, uh, so, so Mifune liked John Wayne, and he liked liked to be uh, solo in shots, and just get that minute to establish the character when he walked across the, the street, or you know, <laughs> he, he just had it. I mean, he, he was a very smart guy. He was going to be a photographer, and he went for um, to get this job as a photographer just after the war. Um, working for Kurosawa, who is an expert in photography, he thought. And instead, it was an audition. And when he found out it was an audition, he got up and he said, what is this shit? I didn't come here for this acting crap, you know? And he was so dynamic for that two-minute rant that Kurosawa ran after him and said, oh, you're, you're coming with me, you know? <laughs> He just he just had it from day one. Oh, and, uh, what a guy! You know, and then Hardy Kruger was in it, who is a very good German actor. He was marvelous, uh, and and then David would take us out. Uh, I had another girlfriend with me at the time, and um, and he uh, took us out at least once a week dinner and t- and regaled us with all those stories that are in Moons of Balloon, and, but but live. You know, he tells all these, all these little details. So, so, so David Nevin was pretty much like you see him in, in on his own screen. Like he was just just perfect gentleman, nice guy. Yeah, yeah. Well, he was about seventy five, and girls were chasing him all over the place, and most of them didn't know who he was. They just thought 
this man so charming and looks so so great and he's so friendly and he's gracious and everything. <laughs> <laughs> Who is he? I had the same experience with um, in Gelson's, which is a very ordinary uh, kind of a uh, grocery store. And, that, and all the girls were giggling and I was in line and I'm like, hey, who is this? You know, what's going on? Uh, and they were laughing and joking. And this guy says, goodbye, girls, you know, come by anytime, you know. And it was Stuart Granger at about 80, 82 or something. <laughs> and he still had the panache and he still had his silver hair and he just had it. Charisma Great. is charisma. It's always charisma there. Is charisma. <laughs> yeah. And, and I, I know I've seen people on stage. Well, my daughter was in theater in college, and I'd go there and see these youngsters. And you could just tell certain people, regardless of what their role was on the stage, your eye was were just drawn to them. Yeah. And you're like, they yeah. got it. I mean, I can't just stop looking at them, which is terrible no. for the people they're actually are supposed to be watching. But yeah, all <laughs> people with these huge stage careers that couldn't couldn't match this person that walked on, you know. And in in Hollywood, they used to call it. That, that she catches the light, or he catches the light. You know, he just somehow all the light goes, all the lights turn to him, you know, like spotlight. You know. And, and they Some can't people. help it. You know, I feel sorry for the other can't actors. I'm just like, you did great. I didn't see everything you did because I was watching. You know, I was, you know. Yeah, 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 yeah. And that's what that's the star system started from that. You know, Florence Lawrence was the first star, and she she just had it. Mary Pickford. Ah, uh, now I know listeners have been waiting for us to get to this, the next big Sinbad movie. <laughs> Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger. And now I'll be I'll be honest with you. I never knew you were in both movies until several years ago because the hair's different. Very different. The beard, yeah. you're you're no longer the comedian. You are the, 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 the villain. <laughs> You did an excellent job of totally transforming. So, you know, I mean, for me, until I was like in my 40s, until I figured out, wait a minute, that's the same guy. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. That's a testimonial. That's great. I really appreciate that. That was, um, they told me that, that he wrote that part and then said, I think, Kurt could do that, and and, uh, and Ray said, "Yeah, let's just try and see if he can he can do it." And and luckily, I got it. So, and it was we started off in the the first scene is the first scene in the movie is the first scene we shot, and it was in the oldest um, oldest temple, a Jewish temple in uh, Toledo, in Spain. It was. 900 years old or something unbelievable. And, and that's where we shot that, that the coronation scene mm-hmm. where I'm furious and jealous. And, you know, <laughs> and then my mom, Margaret Whiting was, as you mentioned, uh, and she, and she, we laughed, the two of us, as, cause we just, I was like maybe 15 years younger than her, 12 years younger than her. <laughs> <laughs> and she was, she was a terrific actress. And, um, and we just laughed the whole time. I'd make dirty jokes. She'd make it. She'd come back with something, and we just giggled and laughed the whole time because we were always together. <laughs> All our scenes were together, and so the, with the fun things were like uh, building this, this great close-ups of me building the um, 
the minister. Yes. You know, and getting the height and putting it in. It was all super dramatic. And then in the, the, the seagull, you remember the, she ends up with the foot of the seagull. Yes. That we, we, I called him George Seagull. <laughs> in honor of George Seagull. You know? and, and he was, he became quite, quite tame. Because at first he was pecking and, and quite nasty, but they're huge. They're much bigger than you expect. <laughs> Be careful. Not the face. Not the face. Yeah, not the face. The head. No, she was delightful to work with, and and then Patrick was a great friend and fun guy. Yeah, Patrick Wayne. For those that are wondering. Yeah, John Wayne's son, and and John Wayne came by uh, once uh, at the hotel, and I happened to be coming out of the elevator at the same time, Uh, and. So Patrick's walking towards his room and he said, son, it's your father. <laughs> and, he got, and you could see John and Patrick go, yeah, <laughs> and he, he pulled himself together and walked back. There was his dad. You know. He just saw him in the distance. <laughs> Legendary figure. I, I can only imagine what it would be like meeting the Duke, John Wayne. I mean, it's just, yeah. uh, I mean, it's a, uh, like you said, legendary. Yeah, he, yeah, he was. Um, I I didn't actually meet him, but uh, but I just saw him in the distance. Oh, <laughs> Patrick's in trouble, you know. <laughs> yeah, I think I'll go this other way. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll meet him another. <laughs> but Patrick was a lot of fun, and uh, and we 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 rehearsed a lot. We did a fight scene, and it was actually longer than it appears in the movie. But, uh, but they cut some of it, and um, and that took that took a little while. To shoot. And we were in these marvelous places, Avila, which is uh, a walled city, giant walls. That it's in the movie. You can see the walls. And the, and the one magic moment there was they had a lot of gypsies as extras, and uh, gypsies are also fantastic horsemen. They're fantastic, and there was. At that time, extras got like a sandwich in a bag, you know, and we're sitting there eating steaks and, you know, <laughs> and uh, uh, unfair and wrong, but, but that was the time. So you see these the gypsies, and they get their they get their sandwiches and they get maybe eating, and then one would go, and another one would join in, and then they'd start singing. And then they start dancing, and they were so magnificent, and that was just their joy in life, you know. And everybody felt like like a loser, you know. <laughs> you see these people that, that had a bag, a sandwich bag, you know, <laughs> they were so they were so full of life and so full of joy. And they made everything you know, we're acting like movie people. You know? <laughs> So it was, a, it was a salient moment, and everybody was just wrapped with attention to this beautiful stuff that they'd been doing for hundreds of years. And then that was, uh, oh, Peter Mayhew. Peter Mayhew was the Minotaur, was inside that suit, because they made a giant suit as well, an eight-foot suit. And then they also, of course, had the, the animation. So one day, 
I, we had to be in that ship out to sea in the Mediterranean, and we we catered going to the ship. <laughs> it sank, and it was like, <laughs> and we'd be there for hours and steaming hot sun, and, uh, but, and we'd have to entertain each other. And but one day, the tide came in when when we were supposed to take the little boat to the to the big ship, and Peter was a, Peter had a day off. And he was seven foot three or something amazing. And um, a very sweet guy. And this, and I had this full costume on. It was all silk. And the sea, the ocean would have ruined it. It was very, very expensive stuff. And uh, he put his hand out, which was about the size of a tennis racket. And I sat in his hand and he lifted me up and put, put me in the boat. <laughs> I said, oh, thanks, Peter. <laughs> he was so strong, <laughs> so gigantic. And it was like, wow. <laughs> no fight with that fellow. <laughs> well, well, luckily he was. But he did it so easily, so simply. You know, well, no, no, just there we, go. there we go. And he had been a porter in the hospital doing lifting bodies you know, every day. He was. Uh, and then from that, you know, a year or two later, it's Star Wars. Yeah, because this was his Very first good. film, if I remember reading yeah. right. So it's uh, he went from one costume to another, and of course, yeah. international fame. Yeah, the all started right. because of the Minotaur. All because <laughs> Minotaur. of because of uh, Harry Housen and and, uh, and Sam Wanamaker was the director, and Sam Wanamaker, the director, was a a uh, active studio guy. You know, and uh, and uh, Hollywood Ten guy. He was a uh, had been a communist as a youth, and uh, and was was a very serious man. And and so he, all of us had to had to go at the studio style to be, <laughs> and it worked. It was great. You know, he, he was terrific. Uh, but it was so funny to see that the, the, the frivolity of it. You know, for normally you just had fun making these movies. And then he was like, let's rehearse this. We need to have more. And, you know, this. <laughs> Think about this. <laughs> so it was funny to see that, that, that going on. And then the pyramid scene in the end, they had a, when I die, I go down this. So there's a stuntman. They couldn't find a stuntman. Uh, they'd all gone home. And so they, they had, thought they were finished and they forgot about this last scene. So they went into town and they found a, a guy who said he was a son. And, uh, and so he came and he was trying the costume on. He fit the costume. And then they took him to the top of the pyramid. And he said, oh, fuck no. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. You can't just and I had to do the damn thing. <laughs> Luckily, I was like twenty something and uh, and liked that kind of thing. <laughs> so I went all the way down, and it was—I did not know where I was at the end. <laughs> and I'm dead and uh, and dizzy, you know. <laughs> and some of the people thought I was dead <laughs> because of the way I hit the floor at the last one. You know? It's not fun at all. <laughs> we had a, a little bit of padding, luckily. And I had the the ape strung to my body. You know, they had a, a face. 
uh, and then then that turns into the king again at the end after I died. Yeah. But we had a lot. Of, that was about a week shooting just the pyramid scene. Now you also worked with Jane Seymour oh, in this yeah. one. Yeah, she was a great friend of mine, uh, and she. Um, we had auditioned for many things together. Uh, we auditioned for Romeo and Juliet with for Zeffirelli when we were teenagers, and she was so beautiful. It was it was heartbreaking. You, know, you just couldn't. You just kept staring at her, and she had she's heterochromatic. You know, she has different color eyes. No, I so didn't know that. At, yeah, it's interesting. If you you can find a close up, but it's, it's very interesting to look. Because you'd never, most of us didn't notice. I sometimes didn't notice, you know, being a foot away from her. But uh, then the light would catch and you'd see it. And uh, and her hair would be down this way. And Karen Powell was in that movie too. She was lovely at that time. She was uh, at her peak. She was high all the time. You know. Hey man, how's it going? <laughs> 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 but she was a doll. And uh, yeah, delightful, delightful movie to shoot. And great to be the villain. Yeah. Everybody's dream. <laughs> well, everybody, because the way you played the villain, I thought was nice because you're playing the villain the way I want people to play the villain, where the villain thinks they're not the villain. <laughs> right. That's which, is, which I found later in life. It's true. <laughs> when you come across a real sociopath or a real, real psychopath, they they have no concern about that at all. What are you talking about? <laughs> I had to kill him. You know, I'm the hero. <laughs> yeah, I didn't want to. <laughs> yeah, no, it's true. It's a missing component in them. Empathy. They, they just don't have it. So, so when you do play those parts. You know, the, you, like I grew up in London, and we knew people that worked for the Cray Twins. You know, <laughs> they were they were enforcers for the Cray Twins, and all of them were like that. So they'd be very nice to you, and you'd always have to keep them at bay, because the minute they did a favor for you, you know, you want somebody taken care of, you know, I'll take care of that, mate. You know, don't worry about it, you know, or, or want to lend you money or something like that. But you never accepted it. You always stayed up out of that because <laughs> because then you owe them a favor. Yep. And they they will collect that, you know, at some point or another. <laughs> it's almost like the Godfather, you know, I, I, yeah, I'm gonna make you an offer you can't refuse, you know. <laughs> Absolutely. Now you did say you worked that Patrick Trouton was in this one. He was the um Melan uh, was Mel- Melantius. Melantius, right. thank you. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, he was. He was. Uh, I mean, he had he had strong presence on screen, and he was uh, a very, very good actor. And he had been Doctor Who, I think, or might have been currently at the time. I'm not sure. But, he was um, quite a big star. He was the second Doctor Who, so he would have. Been, okay. And, and Tom Baker was Doctor Who number four. You can't see it, but I'm wearing my Doctor Who shirt. <laughs> oh, great! So you know your Doctor Who. <laughs> oh, that's great. They're all. What do you think of the new one? I've I've enjoyed every single doctor because I because my favorite is my first one which is Tom Baker because I think your first in your first time you go True. into something um, that's, that's that's another reason why um, John Philip Law is my favorite Sinbad he was my first Sinbad movie you know True. and it's it sets the template and he, ha- he did have panache he did have a 
a hero's joie de vivre, you know. And, uh, he really did. And, and, I, he, and he had it in real life. And I also learned from that movie, you know, trust in Allah, but still tie your camel. <laughs> <laughs> so, man, this, this, this is a great horror movie after at the beginning, I guess. And he says that to me every time I see him. He remembers it perfectly, you know. And he's, like, considered the number three guy in horror, you know. <laughs> he's just always murdering people, you know. And he's great. And there's, again, an example. He played, he was in Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Seven or something, and um, and he's very very popular. He goes to every comic con and he makes a fortune. And he's he studied acting at Yale. <laughs> and this is what he's what made him. <laughs> you never know what's going to get you. You know, there's different yeah. things, and and um, yeah. but it's well, I lost my train of thought while I was speaking it before. <laughs> yeah, my fault. No, no, no. Um, I think I think we're both at that that age is where sometimes you you, you go through and you're like wait a minute we're dang it it's it's oh well yeah 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 I was just about to I had something here <laughs> what I liked about the Harryhausen's creatures in this particular movie is that a lot of them were also very uh, more animalistic more like the the saber tooth tiger yeah. um the, the 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 what else I'm trying to remember the warus which, you the know, war. you know, so the giant warriors and um, those kind of things that, that were in the fingers, that, that, that movie, I think when they filmed the giant, the, the, the war scene, it, it was supposed to be cold, yeah. but from my understanding, yeah. when you were filming it, degrees. yeah, it was, it was, so it was in Malta and we had to wear huge fur coats and people were dropping like flies, you know, actors were passing out, you know, and, and in, in those days they wasn't. It was a different story. It was like, hey, you're young. You'll be fine, you know. <laughs> <laughs> we have to fan him, you know. <laughs> and like, okay, okay, next, next shot. <laughs> but it was, it was 100 degrees. And uh, very difficult to shoot. Very, uh, they're lucky they didn't lose somebody that day. Because that was really... Uh, but but uh, you, you're talking about Ray. He was... There wasn't a day that he wasn't on the set. Even on on scenes like uh, like when the wasp is in the cabin, that kind of thing, e- everything he was he was there, and he helped so much because he could visualize it. And he was very good at communicating uh, exactly what would happen and how dangerous it was, and then he made it very dramatic. And you 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 know as actors you absorb that right away and got oh I see. Otherwise you would be lost and just playing at it instead of feeling it so he was he was brilliant as we're handling people he just was such a gentle person that um i think people underestimate that part of him which was which was the director and the creator guy because he co-directed those movies basically exactly because um and, and you and i talked about this before we started recording virtually every single creature he made as a character of its own where you can see the different emotions and things like that going on with Oh yeah. And it's just it's just amazing how talented he was. Yeah. Well he brought he brought Kali in and he uh Kali in specifically for me to know what it was that I was going against and that we were going against. And I thought 
you know, I'm an actor, I can imagine all this stuff. But once he'd gone into the details of it, I really could, you know, because that, that was what you needed. You needed that, that feeling. Now, How dangerous she was, you know. Oh, yeah. Going back to Cali, one thing I wanted to bring up. I, I think I read somewhere that he had swordsmen, like multiple swordsmen, like like act like they're tied together or whatever to try to get everybody used to the multiple arms when yeah. you're rehearsing. Is that that's true? Yeah. Um, up to a point. I don't think it really worked. Uh, we we had to do it do it clean, you know, just just practice it. And, uh, and we did a lot of practice. And then the Olympic swordsman who, who choreographed it, he was great. And uh, and we we really went to town on it. And we loved it. I mean, we loved doing it. So Martin and I, he might move in it, and he gets injured, you know, and, and then in the end, I push it over the edge. That was all complex. Oh, the next thing that you have to talk about are the green men. Do you remember that scene with the green men? Yeah, the, like, the, the, like, that was the when you were the villain. They, they, they yeah. looked like bug men or whatever, green men. I never, I never knew what to call them. <laughs> oh, um... Was that in it? Was that a, a, the scene where where he had to sword fight them? Yeah, it was in the tent, I think. Okay. What about the scene in in Golden Voyage where we end up at the bottom? Do you remember all the green men carrying us? Oh yes, the men. You're talking about the real yeah. men. Oh yes, 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 yes. Real yes. yes. men. Yeah, I was thinking. So uh, that, I was I was Harry housing creatures are on my mind, and I forgot. Yes, right, these are right, real right. people. <laughs> the, yeah, they were real people. Yeah, yeah. It's boring, but it was very funny when you shot it because they they didn't know. Um, uh, they they were looking around for actors, and then they thought, well, what about dancers? We should get dancers. And they, sure enough, they get 50, 60 dancers. All doing West Side Story and everything, doing tours of Europe and those. And these guys, they painted them all green, and they were hilarious. We were, and every time you overheard them, Caroline and I were in fits of laughter all the time, you know, because because they were all dancers from the New York stage that they left and were touring and traveling all over the place, and so they were. They were thrilled to be in the movie, and they went bananas. They went completely nuts. I was just checking my notes there for a second, but it was just, yeah. I mean, I just remember them having so many people, and it it's probably yeah. was smart for them to get dancers so they could get that. Very good. Very that, that was a brilliant idea. <laughs> yeah, and they went to town, these guys. They were they were 100% committed. It was, it was like, oh, these are terrifying little guys. You know? <laughs> <laughs> It was very funny, and then we end up at the bottom, uh, fighting uh, the with the centaur. And that that fight, that great fight with the it was uh, Griffin. Or, yeah, yes, the centaur and the Griffin. Very super brilliant piece of work. Yeah, because I, I think both films had a similar kind of thing where because you had the trog versus the saber toothed tiger. Yeah, and the yeah. other one. So it's. They're kind of very similar, but different, you know, in um, how they go about the good versus evil. Yeah, there aspects. ends up always a, a denouement on the end of the, of the good against evil. Yeah, absolutely. And, and when I was growing up, I just enjoyed it, you know, and I still enjoy them yeah. today. And it's just, I think some people will be like, all oh, those effects are older. 
because they always want yeah. they, they want more realism, but I think sometimes you just want more fantastic. Yeah, yeah, I agree, I agree, and the um, uh, the conviction of the actors and the storyline is what, what one of the things that works so well. And then, they, like you said, somehow he had that knack of if 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 one of the creatures got wounded, you were really worried about them. You know, you were really like, is he going to be okay? You know, you're not thinking about uh, stop motion action or, or this looks fake. You get completely involved because I have friends who have kids are watching them and they're, they're totally involved and they, they'll say something like, some of the stuff was cheesy, you know, but, but most of it, they're completely involved when they're watching it. They're like, I know, and just, just like they were 30, 40 years ago. And that's what I like about, um, I like CGI, but I also like the non-CGI stuff because I think it holds up longer in that, that yeah. artistic Well, they're doing element. a lot of stunts that way now. They're doing stunts uh, uh, practical. A lot of stunts because they're more vivid, you know, more, the danger is more there. And some of the physics in CGI doesn't feel like the weight or the, the, the power or something. You know, How can it be that, power, that powerful and stop on the dime? You know, it doesn't, doesn't compute sometimes. Uh, so it's great to see practical stunts and things like um, John Wick and things like that, where the, everything is is really done. You know, it's like wow, this is this is exciting. Now, the last film I want to talk to you about was 1985, The Boys Next Door. Okay, yeah, and um, that was with Charlie Sheen and um, Maxwell Caulfield. I haven't seen this one oh, myself. Yeah, he was he was in uh, Greece too. Oh, he, he was a very handsome uh, English actor, a very nice guy, very cool. And uh, Charlie is, was delightful. He was really charming, and uh, and that was I think his first movie or one of his first movies. And he was very uh, very kind and polite guy. He was shot in a gas station. The true story was these two guys went on a, a rampage through L.A. as a couple of murderers. And they stopped murdering more and more people. And it, it, and the, the director was an avant-garde director called Penelope Spirit, who was, uh, who was um, uh, had done some uh, music videos and lots of it. And she was great. She was a very offbeat woman. And she uh, she had, was the one to cast me, and and at the when we started shooting, I I had um, greased my hair back. It, it was supposed to be uh, sort of he was supposed to be Arabic, and he was supposed to be own a gas station or work at the gas station. And the producer and the writer came over to her and said, "And this is this is not me talking. This is them." Uh, they said that's not right. You know, he's too handsome to be working in the gas station. <laughs> <laughs> and, and she said the greatest thing. She said, "Well, have you seen Arabs? Some of them are very handsome." And they said, "Okay, I guess." <laughs> and they went on. <laughs> but I was both uh, so, so flattered by 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 that, and and. Uh, and happy with her answer because <laughs> I didn't want to be fired. <laughs> but it, uh, but we, it turns into the most brutal fight scene 
and they just beat me to a pulp with it with the handle of the jet novel and uh, and it was opposite CBS here in, in broad daylight you know so, it was, uh, so I can still feel a couple of aches and pains uh, falling on the concrete and that sort of thing and they pulled me through a window at the first thing they smashed the window and then and they threw it and it's uh, it's a very uh, sort of racist thing you know <laughs> it's just <laughs> probably would never be shot. <laughs> that'd, be a, that'd be a huge uproar, but uh, but it was a true story, and it actually happened. And they had done this; they had, and it was over uh, five dollars worth of gas. And the guy said, "No, you you gave me uh, you gave me two singles, not not a not two five. And uh, and they really did do that, and then that led them on to terrible. And I had to then have a, a prosthetic of me because I lived, somehow lived through this thing. The only one that lived. And I could describe this. Uh, and and uh, so they showed me real photos of people that had had beatings like this. And their whole head had formed this big. And somehow bloated and, and pain. And they made this prosthetic. You know, I felt like I'd been beaten up. I felt like I'd been beaten to a halt. You can imagine the pain that the person went through. Exactly, and and and, and it's good for you to be able to identify them in real life and get them the um, the justice, because otherwise, who knows yeah. how many other people would have been hurt. Well, that's, yeah, that's always the problem. That's always why you have to get the right guy too. <laughs> yes. Otherwise, you have two monsters out there. <laughs> exactly, and uh, that's 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 the key thing. Now, what ended your career? Why did you stop doing movies? So, um, uh, I came back to the U.S. to live, and I got married. And um, my wife wasn't too into it. Uh, she didn't. She thought it uh, one because it was flighty, you know, and it was a uh, that business has so many, such a reputation for marriages breaking up and opportunities. And, and so she's in the side, so I edged out of it. And plus, being, uh, I had always was playing somebody exotic or from somewhere else, wherever I was, <laughs> even if I was in the country. Where's he from? So, um, uh, and then, and I could do all these different accents, and, things, and I had been trained in them because that was, you know, my early training was at the National Theatre. You, know, you had to, which where Olivier was my boss when I was wait a minute, wait a minute. Olivier was your boss. Sixteen years old, seventeen years old. What was it like? Being, you know, what was he like? I mean, you know, it's, it's Olivier. Oh, I'll tell you one one interesting thing is I. Uh, I started weight training because of him, because he would train every day. And he said, dear boy, you have to be strong to be an actor because you have to always be ready. <laughs> so, so he was a marvelous experience. Uh, and I, I have my a best friend to this day. His name is Chris Chappell. He's a big star in England. Uh, so we, we still communicate you know, and, uh, from that time. 
Uh, and um, so then you had to do sword fighting, you had to do combat, you had to do movement, you had to do um, accents and projections and, and voice and all this kind of thing. And then we were in two or three major plays. So that, that kind of crept. So I always was able to do different things. So I'd always play different kinds of parts, different nationalities. And then here it started to get more, if you weren't from that country or you weren't or couldn't prove that your mom was from there or something, you know, there started to be this kind of anti feeling about that in Sahag and things. And the, the parts started drying up. That was part of it. And then the other part was that I always wanted action. I always wanted to be doing something. So I started doing many other things. And one of them happened to be training. And I, I and that kept me close to the business. And basically, that all so started with Olivier. I mean, you, you have your current career. Olivier helped you with your current career by all those years, yeah. all those decades ago, saying, yeah. do this. Yeah. yeah. He was, he was, uh, not even very well at the time. He was beginning to get sick, and he was still using 60-pound dumbbells, still, still working out every day. And he was—that was Olivier. He was, you know, going onto the stage into the little room and lifting the weights and working by himself. He worked very hard, and he liked it when there were a couple of people around. But but he worked super hard, and uh, he he gave you that. Um, that perspective that, oh, that's why these people are famous or that's why these people are great because they're, they're willing to do the extra thing, the extra money. And uh, he was already renowned as the legendary actor of his day. But uh, there, was, there was never a limit for those people. What do they say? In order to stay on top, you got to keep yourself focused and keep doing it. And, then, and obviously he took that true. The heart yeah. and, and and kept himself in impeccable shape. Yeah, and the pri- um, now the private trainer uh, business is, is burgeoning because of that. Because actors know they have to. It doesn't make sense now. You, it was acceptable for John Wayne to be throwing these huge punches when he was seventy and and and, uh, <laughs> and knocking out twenty year olds, but but it isn't anymore. We have too much knowledge. It has to make sense. So you have to be in shape. Like Brad Pitt in, in, uh, at 57 in, uh, in uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, you know. He looks like a sun man that can beat the shit out of everybody, you know. <laughs> and does, you know. <laughs> and it's believable. Well, yeah, exactly, because he keeps himself that way, like Tom Cruise and so many other people that are just Keanu Reeves. Um, um... Keanu, yeah. yeah. And Keanu, for instance, is somebody that didn't want to work out. He didn't like working out until the Matrix, and then the, the martial arts guys got him into shape, and and his movement started to be really good. And now he just loves it, and he looks younger than he did then. <laughs> he looks better. But he was he was, he and Leo Leo is also uh, uh, Johnny Depp. Uh, they're all um, were reluctant to get into that whole thing. They didn't really want to, but their parts came up that they had to, and so they did. So, if so, you want the role, you got to do the work. Person. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, there's too many. I mean, there's people like Christian Bale out there, or you know, or De Niro started it with Raging Bull, and you know, like, wow, they'll go, they'll do anything. 
Oh, exactly. Oh, yeah. Exactly. Those two are prime examples. Um, Charlize Theron is another example, you know, of, of doing things, you know, with her body to fit the role. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. She was terrifying in that movie. Yeah. And she's just, I, I just saw her the other day and she's just ridiculous looking. She looks like a gazelle. She moves like this. <laughs> she's like, she's got to be close to six foot tall and she's elegant and friendly challenge. <laughs> uh, one other question I want to ask you is, um, do you ever go to conventions to meet fans? No, but I, it's something I, I should do because it's a, a lot of fun and I have a lot of friends who do it. I trained a, a, a man who played Hellboy, Ron Perlman, is a great actor. And, oh. uh, he's a very close friend of mine. And uh, so he does them. And he he didn't think he'd enjoy it, but he loved it. He really enjoyed it. And uh, and then and they pay you super well too. Yeah. And at his level, yeah, because I know, with especially with your stories of the of, of just the Sinbad movies alone, but the oh. other stories, I mean, any convention would love to have you there. I'm sure for Q and As or just you know, the things oh, that you okay. could tell That's people a about. Good point. That's a good Tammy. Uh, you know Tammy Hamilton. Yes, Carolyn yeah, Monroe's she, daughter. Yeah, yeah, uh, and she she told me the, the same thing. She suggested I do that, and then so I'm then after this is after we've gotten through this, I'm I'm going to try to make some inroads into that because that it would be a lot of fun with fun meeting people that really enjoyed and got all that out of it, just like you were saying about CPR people. It, it, it's very enriching to you, and then it would be for me. Oh, I know. I know there'd be people. Be, <laughs> I know there'd be people to be thanking you for your work. I know. Um, one of my friends, I I messaged him and said, "Oh, I'm going to be interviewing Kirk Christian," and and he's like, "Whoa!" And he and he, and, and this is what he said. He said, "I always felt he should have been played. He should have played Sinbad." Oh, that's a great. That's great. That's great. Yeah, that's funny because uh, Charlie, the the producer, he always was trying to get stars, right? To be in, if he couldn't get a star, he'd get the son of a star or the daughter of a star. <laughs> Had to have Bill power or Wayne or something on there. So he, he was funny that way. Um, and what were we just talking about? Because I had one last thing. To Oh, we were talking about- oh, I know, I know. Um, so I, when I started training Ron, which was uh, over a decade ago, maybe 18 years ago, or something, 17 years ago, uh, he had been working with this up-and-coming director in, Spain, in Mexico. And, uh, and so he said, he said, yeah, he said, it's really interesting. I, I said to him, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna get ready for Hellboy. I'm gonna train very hard. I've got a new trainer, and he said, "Who is this new trainer?" And the, and the guy was Guillermo del Toro. And uh, and so Ron said to Guillermo, "Oh, he's um he he's, he trains a lot of the people at the gym, a lot of actors, and uh, he was an actor." And he said, "What is his name?" And he said. Uh, well, he's he was in two of the Sinbad, and he's a Kirk Christian. 
said, yeah, how do you know? He said he was Harun in the first one, right? And then he was, and he knew every single detail about those movies, about me, about all of the cast, about Ray, Ray. and they were so uh, flattering and, and the things. And, and then this guy becomes Oscar-winning genius, you know, many years later. But uh, but uh, it's funny how all these things cross over. And once I, I walked outside of the gym, and there was a, a homeless guy lying there. Like that, and he opened his eyes and he went, Didn't run in the eye of the tiger. <laughs> <laughs> he went, Wow. <laughs> oh, and the last one. Uh, I was in Malibu and I was at John's Garden, which is where they make sandwiches. And I'm in line, and there's a long line. And there's a small man in front of me, and he turns around and he smiles and grins. And and I think I no, it can't be. Oh my God, it's Robin Williams! And I just loved him. And I was about to say how great he was, and he turned around and he said, "Did you do Sinbad?" <laughs> That's Robin Williams saying, "Yeah, we were into it, right?" You know, and he, he rattled off all the same thing. And it's just like, how many people are affected by these? these things, you know, and how, how does that come up? I'm ready to worship this guy, and he's turning around and saying, I know your movies, you know, I'm excited about it. I saw Sinbad, <laughs> and, you know, and I'm thinking, wow, you know, that's, that's it's joy. And then and that just shows you, like I said, the, 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 the legacy of the work that you've done, yeah. and the legacy yeah. of Harryhausen's work, and, and the, Harryhausen. everything coming together, you know, cast, crew, script, they, they, Children are seeing it was his joy, his joy that made that happen, because of his enthusiasm, and he and the way to 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 write a script that that he, none of those things made sense, none of them came, none of those eras came together <laughs> somehow. They did it, they and they worked. It all worked, and you, you learned stuff out of it, and you and you had fun. Uh, joy. Well, Mr. Chris, it's been a pleasure talking with you, and I'm glad you were able to come on the show and, and, and share a lot of these memories that people... My pleasure. My joy. My pleasure. I didn't know, but thank you again. Anytime. And, uh, 